This is a Reconstructionist radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com slash free books to download this book in PDF format. By This Standard The Authority of God's Law Today by Greg L. Bonson Published by the Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas Copyright 1985 Chapter 29 Arguments Against the Law's General Validity Quote, to insist that we are new covenant believers or that the Mosaic commandments must come to us through Christ is not to subtract anything from our obligation to the Old Testament law. End quote. These studies have found extensive biblical evidence for the position that God's law is fully binding for modern ethics unless alterations have been revealed. We have seen that one must presume continuity of moral standards with the Old Testament and this presumption holds for socio-political portions of the law as much as with personal portions of the law. Only God's word has sufficient authority to alter our obligation to previously revealed commandments from God. Some Christian teachers or writers would contend, however, that the law of God does not have a general validity in the age of the New Testament. They would attempt to marshal arguments against the conclusions to which we have been driven by our study of Scripture. In all fairness, we need to survey some of the main reasons which people offer for saying that the law of God is not generally valid in the New Covenant dispensation, asking whether such considerations genuinely disprove what we have said herein. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. A passage of Scripture which clearly seems to teach the presumption of moral continuity today with the Old Testament commandments is Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 19. Yet some write as though this passage says nothing of the sort. They argue, for instance, that verse 17 deals not with Christ's attitude toward the Old Testament law, but rather with Christ's life as the prophetic realization of everything in the Old Testament canon. It is true, of course, that the scope of Christ's declaration here is the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets. However, there is absolutely nothing in the context of the verse or its wording which touches on the life of Christ in distinction from his teaching or on prophecy topology. The focus of attention is obviously the moral standards by which Christ would have us live, and in particular the question of the Old Testament commandments is taken up. Verse 16 speaks of our good works. Verse 17 twice denies that Christ abrogates the Old Testament revelation, in which case any interpretation which makes fulfill imply the abrogation of the law simultaneously renders the verse self-contradictory. Verse 18 speaks more specifically of the law, and in verse 19, Jesus referred back to the object of his remarks in verses 17 and 18 as these commandments. Verses 20 and following speak to the question of righteousness and how the Pharisees have distorted the requirements of God's commandments. It is quite evident that we find in this passage a direct statement by Jesus on the validity of the law, and what he said was that not the least commandment, not the smallest stroke of the law, had been abrogated or would pass away until the end of the spatio-temporal world. It might be suggested that the word but in Matthew 5.17 need not bespeak direct contrast between abrogate and fulfill. However, Greek has two adversatives, and it is the stronger of the two which appears here. Jesus does not speak merely of general contrast, but of direct antithesis between abrogating and fulfilling. 
It might then be suggested that the negation, the not, in verse 17, need not be one of the absolute character, for elsewhere we read phrases in the New Testament which have the same form. Quote, not this, but that, end quote. And the obvious sense is one of relative negation. For example, not so much this as that, end quote. However, in such cases, we have something of a paradoxical introductory formula where something is affirmed and then denied, only then to have the contradiction resolved by the relative negation. For example, quote, whoever receives me does not receive me, but even more the one who sent me, end quote. Mark chapter 9, verse 37. This is not what we find in Matthew 17. Instead of something being affirmed and then denied, we have something denied twice in a row. Quote, Think not that I came to abrogate the law or the prophets. I came not to abrogate. End quote. This is not a paradoxical introduction, but a downright emphatic denial of something. Matthew 5.17, along with the vast majority of instances of not this but that statements in Matthew's Gospel, expresses strong contrast or antithesis, not relative negation. Others who oppose the general validity of the law in the New Testament might hope to come to terms with Matthew chapter 5, verses 17-19 through 19, by arguing that the subordinate clause, until all comes to pass, in verse 18, limits the validity of the law to the obedient ministry of Jesus Christ on earth. To do so, they have to read a great deal into a very colorless phrase with little distinctive character. The phrase in Greek says little more than, until everything happens. The structure of the verse seems to make this phrase parallel to one which went before, one which specifically stated, until heaven and earth pass away. The interpretation before us, then, would make the verse self-contradictory by saying that the law was both valid until the end of the world and valid until Jesus had kept it all, in which case it is now both set aside and not set aside. Besides, this interpretation takes all in the phrase until all things happen as referring to all the jots and tittles of the law mentioned in verse 18. But this is grammatically incorrect seeing that all and jot and tittle do not agree in gender or number according to the Greek text. There appears to be no escape from the thrust of Matthew 5:17 through 19 we must presume a general validity for the Old Testament law today. Even if someone wants to point out, quite correctly, that the teaching here must be qualified by New Testament revelation elsewhere, our point would remain. Our presumption is that the Old Testament law is binding until the New Testament teaches us otherwise. If a commandment is not altered or set aside by the New Testament, we must assume an obligation to keep it. Alleged Dismissals of the Law in the New Testament Although it overlooks the extensive positive evidence which has been presented in this introductory book and in my more comprehensive treatment, Theonomy in Christian Ethics, 2nd edition, 1984, one procedure for arguing against the general validity of the law is to point to isolated New Testament passages which appear to dismiss the Old Testament law for today. The treatment given such verses elsewhere in this book demonstrate that such passages do not in fact contradict the general validity of the law. At least, they can be understood legitimately in a non-contradictory fashion. Those who insist on reading them in another way, so that they conflict with clear endorsements of the law's validity in the New Testament, create a theological tension where one need not exist. Acts 15 A few New Testament passages seem to appear quite often in the polemics of those who oppose the law's general validity today. 
Acts 15 is commonly cited, as though the Apostolic Council's decree were intended to delineate precisely those laws and only those laws which remained valid from the Old Testament. But such a view is incredible. According to it, since the Council did not forbid blasphemy and stealing, such behavior would be condoned today, the prohibition of these things not carrying over into the New Testament. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. In 1 Corinthians 9, 20 and 21, Paul says that he was not under the law and could behave as one without law. However, these remarks come in the context of saying that he behaved one way among the Jews and behaved another way among the Gentiles. The difference here was surely not one which pertained to moral matters, as though Paul was a thief among some people but not a thief among others. But it had to be a difference pertaining to laws which separated Jews and Gentiles. Thus, Paul would be speaking here of the ceremonial laws which created a middle wall of partition. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. In order to minister to all men, Paul observed such laws among the Jews, but disregarded them among the Gentiles. All the while, he declares, he was not without the law to God, but under law to Christ. Obviously then, Paul is not dismissing the law of God. He kept the law under the authority of Christ and Christ himself. We know from elsewhere, for example, Matthew 5, 17-19, taught that every least commandment of the Old Testament was binding today. Galatians chapters 3 and 4 In Galatians 3 and 4, Paul speaks of a historical epoch wherein the law served as a prison master and as a tutor until the object of faith, Jesus Christ, came and made believers mature sons who no longer need such a tutor. Some people have seized such metaphors and statements and jumped to the hasty conclusion that the entire law of God, which Paul called holy, righteous, and good in Romans 7.12, is nothing but weak and beggarly rudiments, Galatians 4.9, which have now passed away. However, a better reading of Galatians will pay attention to the historical context. Galatians is a polemic against Judaizers who insisted on keeping of the ceremonial law as a way of justification. Acts 15, verses 1 and 5, and Galatians 5, verses 1 through 6. The portion of the Old Testament law, which Paul speaks of in Galatians 3, 23 through 4, 10, was a tutor unto Christ, which taught that we should be justified by faith, verse 24. The moral law, for example, you shall not steal, does not serve this function. It shows us God's righteous demand, but it does not indicate the way of gracious salvation for those who violate the demand. On the other hand, the ceremonial law was indeed an instructor in salvation by grace, typifying the redemptive work of Christ. Now that the object of faith has come, however, we are no longer under this tutor. Verse 25. We are mature sons who enjoy the reality which was previously only foreshadowed. When we were but children, we were under the rudiments, the weak and beggarly rudiments. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 9. Paul spoke in Colossians 2.16-23 of rudiments and ordinances, explaining that they were but a shadow of the things to come, but the body is Christ's. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. Paul was speaking of the ceremonial law which foreshadowed the work of the Redeemer, but which was weak and impoverished in comparison to the reality brought in by Christ. If this is not evident enough from the historical context, Judaizing insistence on circumcision, from the very vocabulary chosen by Paul, rudiments, and from the function assigned to the specific law which Paul had in mind, pointing instructively to Christ and to justification by faith, it should be obvious from the example which he immediately offered at the end of our passage. 
In Galatians 4.10, Paul specifies what he means by the illustration of observing the ceremonial calendar. Galatians dismisses the shadows of the ceremonial law, but it endorses the continuing demand of the moral law of the Old Testament, as we see in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13-14 through 14 and 23b, where love and the fruit of the Spirit are demanded in order to conform to the law. Hebrews 7, verses 11-25 through 25. Another passage to which appeal is commonly made by those who oppose the law's general validity today is Hebrews 7, 11-25, for it speaks in verse 12 of a necessary change of the law. If we consult the passage carefully, however, it will be clear that the change which is in mind here is a particular or singular change pertaining to a requirement for the priesthood. The priesthood has been changed from the Levitical order to the order of Melchizedek in verses 11 and 12, which obviously points to the fact that the priests spoken of in Hebrews need not come from the particular tribe of Levi chosen in the Mosaic law to serve the altar, verses 13 and 14. Instead, the great high priest, Jesus Christ, came in the likeness of Melchizedek, quote, not according to the law of a fleshly requirement, namely Levitical family origin, end quote, so that there has been a setting aside of foregoing commandment in order that a better hope promised in Psalm 110 verse 4 might be realized. This is in verses 15 through 21. This singular change in the law is, first, one which pertains to the ceremonial law, and thus it does not contradict the general validity of the Old Testament law as presented in this book. Second, this change is said to be a necessary change arising from its ceremonial character and from the scriptural teaching that the final high priest would come after the order of Melchizedek. This kind of necessity does not prove that any other law of God has been changed unless it too is ceremonial in nature and dictated by the word of God himself. Consequently, Hebrews 7 does not stand in opposition to the presumption that the Old Testament law is binding today until God's word teaches us otherwise. Theological Considerations About Revelation and the Covenant If we turn now from arguments against the law's general validity, which arise from consideration of specific passages of Scripture, we come to a variety of theological considerations which are meant to militate against the perspective which has been taken in these studies. There are some who would betray misconceptions of what our position is by saying that we need to pay corrective attention to the progress of revelation pertaining to redemptive history. The difficulty is that our position has been formulated by studying that what the New Testament says about the Old Testament law, along with what the whole Bible reveals about the character of ethical norms. Consequently, we have been very mindful of progressive revelation, which has brought us to the conviction that Old Testament commandments must be taken as binding until changes are declared by the Word of God itself. Those who vaguely appeal to progressive revelation, as supposedly a sufficient refutation of the position taken in these studies, seem to have confused progress of revelation about God's law with ethical evolution of God's standards themselves. Another theological consideration which has been advanced in the debate over the general validity of God's law is the observation that Jesus Christ is the mediator of the new covenant, the apex of God's revelatory work, and the Lord of our lives, in which case we must listen to him and pattern our lives after his life if we are going to have a Christian ethic. Of course, there is nothing we need to contradict in such observations. Our obligation is indeed to the word and example of Jesus Christ. The question that remains, however, is whether Christ, by his word and example, taught us to honor the authority of the Old Testament commandments. Since he did, as abundant evidence demonstrates, 
then the suggestion that we should follow Jesus and not Moses is a misleading and false antithesis. Since the New Testament endorses the moral standards of the Old Testament, we are not forced to choose between an Old Testament ethic and a New Testament ethic. We are to follow them both, for they constitute one unified moral standard. Is it true, as some claim, that since we live under the New Covenant today, we should formulate our Christian ethic on the basis of the New Testament scriptures exclusively, seeing the standards of the Old Covenant as obsolete? If we pay attention to the very terms of the New Covenant, our answer must be no. Jeremiah 31:33 stipulated that when God made a new covenant, he would write his law on the hearts of his people, not that he would abrogate his law, replace his law, or give a new law. Consequently, to live in submission to the new covenant is to rejoice in the law of the old covenant, for it is written upon our hearts, out of which are the issues of life. Promises and Demands those who suggest that the establishment of the New Covenant nullifies the general validity of the Old Testament law appear to have confused the sense in which the Old has become obsolete, Hebrews 8.13, and the sense in which it continues the same, Hebrews 10.16. All of God's covenants are unified. They make the same moral demands and focus upon the same promises. However, the promises call for historical fulfillment, the change from anticipation to realization, in a way which the demands do not. There is a difference in perspective between Old and New Covenants regarding the promises of God, while the moral standards of both are absolute and unchanging. Thus, the Old Covenant administration, sacrifices, covenant signs, temple, can be set aside for the New Covenant realities, even though the Old Covenant moral law remains fundamentally the same. Historical events are crucial regarding the promises, whereas they are irrelevant to the demands. Indeed, the need we had for Christ to come and historically fulfill God's redemptive promises arises precisely because God's just standards cannot be set aside. Hebrews specifically teaches that the new covenant is a better covenant because it is enacted on better promises, Hebrews 8.6, not a better law. Rather, the old covenant's law is written on the heart of the new covenant believer, verse 10. Therefore, we live under the realized promises, the fulfilled realities of the New Covenant, not the Old Testament shadows of redemption, and yet we live under the same essential covenant as did the Old Testament saints, because all of God's covenants are one. They constitute the covenants of the promise, Ephesians 2.12, progressive outworkings of the one promise of salvation. Within these Old Covenant administrations, the law was not against the promises of God, Galatians 3.21. This very same law is written on the heart in the New Covenant's fulfillment of the promise. Hebrews 8, 6-12 Therefore, the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord of the New Covenant, and that His example is the model for Christian ethics, and the fact that New Covenant is the administration of God's single promise under which we are now privileged to live, do not imply in any logical or biblical way that the moral standards of the Old Testament have been laid aside as invalid today. To insist that we are New Covenant believers, or that the Mosaic Commandments must come to us through Christ, is not subtract anything from our obligation to the Old Testament law, as interpreted and qualified by the advanced revelation of the New Testament. Remarks Relevant to the Law's Categories Finally, we can survey a few popular arguments against the general validity of the Old Testament law all of which relate to the categories commonly recognized by theologians, namely moral law, judicial law, ceremonial law. First, there is the argument that the Bible never speaks of such categories. 
in which case the law must be viewed as an indivisible whole. If the law has been laid aside in any sense, then accordingly the whole law has been laid aside, it is thought. Such thinking is simplistic and fallacious. To begin with, the Bible can often be correctly summarized in ways which are not actually spoken of in the Bible itself. For example, the doctrine of the Trinity. And so the convenient categorization of the law is not unacceptable in advance. It all depends on whether the categories and their implications are true to scriptural teaching. Secondly, there is a sense in which the law stands together as a unit. Indeed, the Bible does not carefully classify laws for us according to some explicit scheme. We should bear this fact in mind if our temptation is a priori to ignore a whole segment of the Old Testament law as nullified in virtue of our own classification schemes. Commandments cannot be easily pigeonholed for dismissal. Thirdly, biblical teaching does, nevertheless, demand our recognition of a fundamental difference between moral laws and cultic symbolic redemptive laws. God implied that category differentiation when he declared, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Hosea 6.6. The differentiation is also clear from the New Testament's different handling of Old Testament commands. Some are reinforced as our duty, while others are laid aside as outmoded shadows. Some laws in the Old Testament had a redemptive purpose, looking forward to the work of the Savior, for example, the sacrificial and priestly codes. But it would be erroneous to assert that all laws, for example, you shall not steal, had that character or aim. Thus, we should not repudiate the notion that there is a ceremonial division within the law, perhaps better called restorative laws. Moreover, the ceremonial laws, which in their very nature or purpose imposed a separation between Jews and Gentiles, were designated by Paul, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, Ephesians 2.15, Colossians 2.14-17, for ordinances. He recognized a system of laws in ordinances, a special category of commandment, which had been abolished by Christ's redemptive works. The Case Laws Another category-related argument against the general validity of the Old Testament law today maintains that the applications and illustrations of the Decalogue, which we find in the Case Laws, or Judicial Laws, of the Old Testament are not perpetually binding. Some people say this and mean no more than the obvious truth that the cultural examples and applications of God's standards will be different between ancient Israel and modern America. However, others seem to be claiming something further, namely that the principles revealed illustratively in the case laws of the Old Testament must be flexibly reapplied today in a new way, in a way which is personal or geared to the new church form of God's kingdom, and that their current application must be restricted to these domains alone. This latter view is erroneous. Consider the following example. Keeping the sixth commandment, you shall not kill, once meant, among other things, not being careless where human life could be endangered. For example, chopping with an axe that had a loose head. To say that this defining specification of the sixth commandment means is no longer applicable, that is, to say that carelessness when life is endangered is now morally acceptable, for example, one may legitimately drive with poor brakes is in fact to alter the very meaning and requirement of the Sixth Commandment. It is to tamper with what God intends by His commandments. If we change God's case law, explanations, and applications, the principles they illustrate or teach, then we will have to answer for tampering with the intended meaning of His word. To say that the Sixth Commandment is perpetually binding, but not the related judicial or case laws, is to render you shall not kill 
an arbitrary label which covered one kind of conduct in the Old Testament, but has pasted over a different kind of conduct in the New. Since the case law's principles define the Decalogue, the case law's principles, in their full scope, personal and social, ecclesiastical and civil, are as perpetual as the Decalogue itself. Thus, the New Testament practice, which we have previously observed, is to cite the case laws of the Old Testament as readily as, and right along with, the Ten Commandments. For example, Christ's list of moral duties rehearsed for the rich young ruler in Mark 10.19 includes, You shall not defraud, right along with the Decalogue. Conclusion We have examined specific New Testament texts and reflected upon various theological themes, but in none of them have we have yet to find any convincing evidence which runs counter to the perspective formulated in this book. There may be isolated Bible verses that, when read out of literary theological context, give a passing impression that the law no longer binds our behavior. Upon closer look, however, not a single New Testament text says that the standards of conduct taught in the Old Testament law are now immoral, outdated, or incorrect in the way they define godliness. We know that the law is good, said Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. In a similar fashion, there may be certain concepts or theological considerations that initially suggest a passing away of the law of the Old Covenant. When correctly understood and biblically analyzed, however, None of these theological themes logically implies the repeal of the moral standards of the Old Covenant. If they did, we could have no principled objection to situationism or cultural relativism. We would forfeit the objective, absolute, universal authority of biblical morality. Paul's presupposition was clear, quote, Now we know that whatsoever things the law says, it speaks to them who are under the law in order that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may be brought under the judgment of God, end quote. Romans 3.19 Kogan arguments against the goodness and universal validity of the moral standards taught in the Old Testament law have simply not been found. Critics have failed to offer us a non-arbitrary, scripturally grounded, unambiguous principle by which they may altogether disregard the Old Testament's definition of good and bad behavior or attitudes, or, even tougher, by which they can distinguish between valid and invalid portions of the Old Testament moral instruction. The general validity of God's law for our day, apart from particular biblically-based qualifications on it, cannot successfully be evaded. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His Kingdom.